how do you avoid accidents in the future? Look, if we want this technology to, to take off, we cannot keep having Teslas crashing and Tesla claiming that they are fully self-driving and people really expecting, I think, not only the cars to drive, but to fly them around, you know, like the, there's, there's marketing and then there's customer education. And these, these companies are really playing a fine line. And what happens if we see more crashes like the Uber crash that happened in Arizona, like the Tesla crashes that are happening, we are going to see less and less investment and the entire industry is going to crash if there's no public trust in these vehicles. Hi, everybody. This is How Tech Becomes Law, a public interest tech podcast about technology, public policy, and career advice. We are your co-hosts, Jingyan Zhang and Dhruv Gupta. This week, we have a conversation with Prachi V from the MBTA about innovation in the mobility space. Prachi works on autonomous vehicle safety standards, digital and shared mobility projects, and electric mobility services and infrastructure. Today, she leads the implementation of AI and ML technologies at the MBTA and also builds safety protocols for Safe AI, an automation firm. Previously, she led product and innovation at AES, a Fortune 100 energy firm, in the e-mobility division and also developed EV standards for workplaces and fleets at Forth. Prior to that, Prachi worked with the World Bank on urban transportation projects in Latin America, Africa, and Asia, really living up to the name World Bank. Beyond work, Prachi serves on the board of mobility startups and leads committees at TRB and SAE. She also co-founded Womanium, an organization that advances young women in the STEM domain. Thanks so much for joining, Prachi. It's really good to have you. Tell us, tell us more about what you do. We know you do a lot here. I need to do a lot, but I have a lot of fun in everything I do. So I started off my work journey coming fresh off of the London School of Economics and Political Science, studying mathematics and economics, thinking I'll work in the energy and environmental fields. So I was here in Washington, D.C. And I started working with an organization called World Resources Institute, WRI. And my, my first work and my first job was uh, writing a whole report on how climate is going to impact the supply chain of different companies. In fact, something we are seeing today with the fires in California, with the drought in, in the middle of the, the country, and of course, with, you know, with more and more climatic disasters around the country. But what really caught my eye while working at WRI is another division of WRI, which was focused on something called BRT systems, which is a bus rapid transit mm -hmm. system. At the time, these colleagues of mine were building a BRT system in Istanbul, in Turkey, and within six months of building that project, what used to be three hours of traffic became 30 minutes. And today, a million people use this transit system every day. So, you know, while working and studying climate, I was also working with the managing director, heads at the State Department and international leaders on climate negotiation. I realized what actually makes real tangible difference in people's lives is infrastructure. Policy takes a lot of time. And I know we'll we talk about policy in this podcast, but what makes true impact? Think of it through millennia itself. It's the innovation that mankind has created. It's technology, it's infrastructure that has made the greatest impact in our lives. Coming back to how I got into transportation, it's looking at that project in Istanbul. From there, I worked at the World Bank, which was really exciting because I got to work on projects and understand the similarities 
in challenges as well as the potential solutions that could be applied in Africa, it could be applied in Latin America, and could be applied in Asia as well. World Bank also moves a bit slowly, so I started mentoring and advising startups. And I realized that it's not only infrastructure, but what's at the cutting edge is, is most important. And if anyone wants to be a leader in the field, it's really understanding what's going to be not just the technology of today, but the technology of tomorrow. So this is where I started advising and, and mentoring startups. In fact, all three of them, we got acquired by Daimler, the owner of Mercedes-Benz. In fact, how Mercedes who invented the car. They, they understand the car very well, but they don't understand modern transportation technology. So they had to invest and purchase the three startups I was advising. Uh, and that's how I got into the innovation space as well. Uh, so today I, I work with the MBTA, like you said, I focus on all technologies that impact how people are accessing MBTA, facilities, be it the subway, be it the ferries, or be it commuter rail. But I also advise startups, I advise startups in the automation field, as well as in the vehicle electrification field. Thank you for the context there. It's just such an incredible career so far. And it sounds like you're just getting started too. You've got a bunch going on. Let's let's pick up on this last thing that you mentioned. You mentioned that, you know, vehicle electrification and the forefront here. It looks like we're at this precipice. We're about to really take off. What are you seeing? I'm absolutely excited. I've read both the infrastructure bills. It took quite some time of my meet, uh, <laughs> but I did it in the right direction. Look, you know, we, we can't just have electric vehicles. We can't just rely on the private sector and Tesla and more Elon Musk to say, please make electric cars for us. We also need to do the other thing, just like at every other corner, you're going to see a gas station in this country. We need to be replacing that or adding at least EV stations at every other corner. Yeah, the, the biggest fear that's holding people back from adopting EVs has always been rage anxiety. Mm. And rage anxiety means the fear of, you know, running out of juice in your car and realizing, all right, that's not a station nearby, I'm going to be stranded in the middle of nowhere. To get rid of that, there are different estimates, but we need some number of stations uh, every kilometer, some number of stations for every person that may be in the country to get rid of this fear and overcome these gaps. So the infrastructure builds, again, has plans for adding charging stations, not only in you know in Boston and cities like DC, San Francisco, but also corridor charging as well. So those corridors along the West Coast, along the East Coast, and where people are traveling, where right. they make those long trips. In your role at the MBTA, which is a public transit agency here in Massachusetts, is that who you think right. we represent in terms of the public sector taking on a strong role in establishing those stations versus say, an alternative model such as with Tesla and the supercharger network and having the private sector building out those stations. Absolutely. So without any political bias, because I think if you're libertarian, you may say one thing. If you're, if you're not, you may say another. I think there's a role for both. I mean, Tesla's done an amazing job uh, bringing on those early adopters for electric vehicles. And when I say we, I mean the entire country. So that does include governments at the federal level, as well as the city and state level stepping in. What Tesla has created is a network that can only be used for Tesla cars. Mm -hmm. But again, if we have a neutral government agency come in, then that infrastructure is widely used, no matter which car you may have. And, and that's more efficient in terms of building that, efficient in terms of the usage it's going to get. So that's just a smarter and better way to go about it. And I'll just give you some comparisons where the U.S. is really lagging in charging infrastructure at the moment. Countries mm -hmm. like China have about 800 to 900,000 charging mm -hmm. stations already, versus we have 40,000 in this right. country. And of course, wow. even small countries like Norway have a charging station every 50 kilometers. 
So that tells you the vision they've had as a small country to build out the infrastructure for their people. That sounds like a chicken and egg problem, right? How do we get the chicken out of the egg before the egg is, you know, even there, right? Like if 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 there isn't charging infrastructure, right. then there ends up being range anxiety. But if people aren't buying cars because of range anxiety, right. then you have less charging infrastructure. I think every every technology in some ways is chicken and the egg. And it begs the larger question, right? Where do we want to go go as a mm-hmm. society? Where do we want to go as a country? What are the kind of carbon emission goal reduction goals that we want? And how do we get there? And then we ask, all right, what kind of infrastructure do we need on the private sector side, on the government side, in terms of standards, all of that. I guess just piggybacking off of what you just said, is this somewhere you think the government is falling short? You think the infra bill is, you know, a step in the right direction, but not a leap in the right direction? Where do you think we need to go from here? Of course, the U.S. is lagging behind in electric vehicles in the past 10 years. (laughs) So the largest EV market is 44% of it is in China about 30% in Europe, and then the U.S. has a small percentage. And that's what we're trying to catch up. Both we do not have sufficient battery makers in this country. There's a company called Cattle, C-A-T-L, which uh, did not exist less than five years ago. And today it's one of the largest battery makers, and it's in, in China. Uh, so clearly, you know, it's it's not just innovation, but bringing things to scale and having the kind of government, private sector, research, industry, all working together to to again move towards the technologies that we want to see in the future. Well, where we did see a massive surge of investment was in the autonomous space. And it seems like it's cooled off a little bit over the last couple of years as people have gotten more realistic, let's say. Um, What are you seeing there? Is that I I know you have a good amount of experience here as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say everything that we are doing with regards to passenger automated vehicles is wrong. Wow. Okay. So that's really controversial. That's the point of a podcast, right? To have fun and maybe bring up some new ideas. This is how we get ratings. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So uh, let me justify the statement I made. What are we doing wrong with passenger automated vehicles? I would say almost everything. There's heavy dependency right now on the private sector to make one vehicle fully automated. That means every vehicle on the road needs to have, have you ever seen a Waymo or an Argo car? It has like a billion cameras on top on every different angle. It has at least, you know, 10 different LiDAR radar systems. These things get expensive very quickly. Of course, all the data that's getting collected then requires and has computation needs as well. And that adds weight to the car. That's that obviously adds cost to the car as well. So that's a very expensive way of approaching a problem. So that's on the, the private sector side. What I'm seeing in the government side is, is a sincere and really missing understanding of what automated technologies are and how to go about regulating them. What the USDOT has done is come out with these AV policy documents. And then what each of the states are doing is at the DMV level, asking for, asking any private sector company, say a Waymo operating and testing in California, asking them for the number of disengagements that they have. So this is every time a driver needs to take control of a car, that's counted as a disengagement where the autonomy side has failed. That's clearly not enough to understand how these vehicles are operating, how do you avoid accidents in the future. Look, if we want this technology to to take off, we cannot keep having Teslas crashing and Tesla claiming that they are fully self-driving and people really expecting, I think, not only the cars to drive, but to fly them around. You know, it's uh, there's, there's marketing and then there's customer education and these these companies are really playing a fine line 
And what happens if we see more crashes like the Uber crash that happened in Arizona, like the Tesla crashes that are happening, we are going to see less and less investment and the entire industry is going to crash if there's no public trust in these vehicles. So really it's the industry coming together and saying we need to hold each other accountable and the government certainly playing a stronger role in that as well. Is this where you think NHTSA needs to step in and set ground rules, set test tracks? What, what needs to happen? There needs to be more regulation and more understanding of what kind of, what is the right data to be asking and how do you have safe deployment of automated vehicles? Absolutely, NHTSA needs to play a role. I think the, the other agency that's failed is, is a little bit on the SAE side and then the customer education side as well. So SAE has the SAE levels zero to five to describe autonomy levels. So one or zero being um, fully non-automated and five being fully automated. They're great standards. Uh, the problem is no one in the industry understands them very well. In fact, like Toyota is building, you know, across two, three and four right now. So no one fits cleanly into a bucket. And of course, from the public side, no one understands these, these standards. So we need better framing of autonomy as well coming from, from industry and, you know, going through the press into our common knowledge. But of course, this industry is evolving. It's evolving very fast, and we are going to see new regulations, new best practices come out of here. What, what sorts of new regulations and best practices are you, would you be interested in? I think this is true for, for every industry, um, the data ownership question and solving that as well. Do we keep the, the consumer at the heart of this and really give people choice? Okay. Imagine, for example, if Facebook came to you and said, all right, I'm not going to track either of you. Right. Instead, I'll give you the option. Either you give me your data for free and you get Facebook for free, or you pay $5 a month and we don't send your data to all these third parties where your data goes today. Consumers today don't have that kind of choice. But ideally, in a world I would like to live in would be a world where data ownership is, is a question that everybody's thinking about. Privacy is something everybody's thinking about and innovation is something that everybody thinks about as well. Today, um, again, anyone who owns data is going to be king. Does that have to happen at the federal level, like at the government level, or can like an organization like SAE say, if you want you know, to partner with us for various reasons, then you have to do X, Y, and Z? Yeah, absolutely. Look, the, the push needs to happen from somewhere. Why was SAE created in the first place? So just as a bit of history lesson, SE stands for the Society for Automotive Engineers. And it's an organization created by Henry Ford in the early 1900s. This was the time where cars were getting more and more predominant on American streets and, you know, occasionally killing a person or a few people here and there. And this is where the government said, all right, we need to make better and safer cars. Uh, so the industry said, well, hold on, hold on, don't regulate us. Regulations are bad. We will self-regulate. We will come up with these standards. We will come up with these practices so that we hold each other accountable. We will all follow these standards, but we don't want government to come and tell us because that's going to hurt our innovation. That's going to hurt our bottom line. But the push was there because of public outcry, because of some government push. So again, I think, uh, you know, an, an educated workforce and government that works in people's interests will make sure that the private sector is remaining competitive and works in the consumer's favor. So, Prachi, let me ask you a question. Where is the V2X revolution that I've been promised? <laughs> what happened to it? Yes. Yes. What happened to it? Like every good technology requires multiple players. We can't just go and tell Google, hey, make something cool for us and expect it to come tomorrow. So, V2V, V2X also requires 
not just the right infrastructure, not just, you know, the capabilities we have today with 5G technologies, but also municipalities, state governments, traffic enforcement agencies all coming together and saying, we will adopt this. So imagine you have a vehicle and that vehicle can communicate to the vehicle Mm -hmm. in front of you. So that's V2V, vehicle-to-vehicle communication, where I know, all right, you're braking, Mm -hmm. I should brake too. Or you're going at the speed, great, I could platoon after you, maybe even have a hands-free approach and go at the same speed as you because we're going to the same destination or using the same same corridor. There's also V2P, which for me, again, braking with the city and with the transit agency is very exciting, which is vehicle to pedestrian. So again, imagine a cyclist with a smartphone knowing that there's a car right right behind him or her. There's V2N, which is vehicles to a mobile network, especially with 5G technology. This is going to be very exciting because it first allows the vehicle to be smart, to have some kind of V2-something capability, but then also opens up um, opportunities for a better multimedia experience. So in-car, you're able to do much more than play shitty games while your car is charging. Uh, no offense to Tesla, but there could be better, better things that are happening. So this is kind of the V2, V2X suite that we are looking at. What I mentioned earlier is autonomy. The way we are doing it is very computationally intensive. It's very expensive to add all these sensors to the cars. And this is what I think is going to slow down a deployment in the passenger automated vehicle uh, sector. However, there's a different approach we could take, is, which is combining autonomy with the V2, V2V, V2X. And this is, in fact, the approach that China uh, as a country is mm. taking as well, where the Chinese think that 5G is essential to their autonomous driving roadmap. And they realize that 5G can reduce the high cost of onboard equipment. It could increase the speeds at which these autonomy cars are, are working at as well. I'll give you the example. Just pre-pandemic, I was in a Waymo car, which... You know, in, in California, and my friend was showing me, yeah, this is our greatest car. It's like new new features and come, let's go for a test drive. And of course, the car moves very, very, very slowly because it has to be extremely mm-hmm. cautious and, uh, you know, wh- while it's moving. So it was going at maybe 20, 30 miles an hour. And again, the Chinese have realized that as well. And when they combined uh, automated vehicle technology with the cellular, so C2B technology is what we realize is, again, the speeds can go at much higher because the car has information about what's happening in its right. environment much more quickly. It can make decisions. The computation is not happening on board. It can also happen um, outside of the vehicle. Maybe even cars can share LiDARs and radars as well, right? So we could share the same sensor equipment as well if you're all taking the same same input. It's an entire ecosystem that you're creating and ecosystems are hard to make. It requires, requires a lot of coordination. It requires a lot of... Ca- Initial capital funding as well. Remember, this is not not easy to deploy. Think of 5G too, right? 5G only works in line of sight, so you'll need a node literally at every corner. And this is kind of similar infrastructure list that we are looking at. Again, in this country, we've heavily underinvested in infrastructure for a long time. And if I were to call uh, President Biden and say you should add something to the infrastructure bill, I would say let's focus on <laughs> V2V and and make uh, your dreams come true. Yeah, I've been waiting. Is this uh, is this a, a government thing? Just like, you know, we were talking about charging networks and, and making that parallel to electric vehicles. Is this somewhere, something where NHTSA has to get involved and say, you know, all new cars from 2025 have to have this yeah. particular sensor or is it SAE? Yeah. Who has to put this together? Yeah, it's it's like you identified all the players, right? It's government, it's US Department of Transport, it's also the FCC because we need 
control over the, the bandwidth. I think 5G is, is very different. It uh, opens many more applications for us. And that's the technology now that we should be looking at to build a phone. I'm kind of curious to follow up on so your discussion around China, right? And China being as an alternative model, where are the challenges you see in terms of applying the lessons or the potential opportunities that we can gain from looking at China to the United States? Yeah, absolutely. I'm not sure it's uh, apples to apples comparison. Look, in terms of data privacy, right, we need to ask the question is how do we empower our drivers and how do we support innovation? And currently it's the incumbents, incumbents that are, that are winning. I'll give you another example. Just, you know, a few years ago here in Washington, DC, I was uh, at an RPE conference and uh, at the same conference, there was the a team from Bell Labs. And they were showing me this uh, 5G transponder they had made, which was the smallest 5G transponder in the world at the time. And it was pretty amazing. You know, it was like a software-defined uh, software and controlled radio with steer, steer beaming and, and had some really great technologies. But where is that, that transponder today? Nowhere to be deployed. But instead, you have companies like AT&T that are coming out and say, oh, we have 5G. We just call it 5GE. But look under the hood. <laughs> it's just 4G with some lipstick on top. So what we've done is we've let these incumbent, incumbents win for yeah. such a long time that they're killing innovation in the fields. So we're really taking this innovation we have and shutting it down. And this is where, again, I think just stronger support and a breaking down of, of yeah. big tech so we can allow more innovation to happen would be the, the right method for us, for all the innovation we create in this country to really support that. That's the path I would recommend forward. So this is a hot take that you've said in passing. What does the breakdown of big tech mean to you? That's a, a good question. So I will rephrase that as what does true innovation and competition mean for me? Because when I look at every industry today, I see that there are monopolies or oligopolies, right? There are three or four mm -hmm. major players and they dominate the sector. And ideally, I would love to see thousands of them and a true consumer choice as well. What are, at the risk of, uh, you know, future career potential, <laughs> what are examples of this that you might see? You know, I, you mentioned AT&T, you know, the canonical okay. example is Google, Facebook, etc. What What's one that you want to point to? Look, I think at least in the, the world I'm working in, it's very exciting, which is why I work with right. startups as well, right? There's so many innovative startups that are coming in the transportation sector. So I would say anyone who's interested in the sector, come join. There's so much money. There's so many great ideas. And we still don't have major dominant players that are that are buying everything. Right. I was going to say, if anything, in, when it comes to vehicles, right, is that you're, you're seeing this competition between these companies, whether it's between Apple or right. Google or the OEMs, um, the car manufacturers themselves, to say, like, who's going to control the dashboard mm -hmm. and the and devices. Exactly. And electric vehicles you know, are a game changer, right? Because look, they require 10% of, of the components that an ICE internal combustion engine car requires. So that means production is way simpler. And if you could put together an, an EV kit, you know, give me a ch chassis and the, and the kind of frame that I want, great. I have a, a custom car for myself. So that's the kind of innovation I'm really excited about in the electric vehicle sector. That's cool. Yeah. It, yeah. And I guess like, more broadly speaking, you've been at the cutting edge of technology for a while, running strategy, technology opportunities, you know, development. What are you excited about? What am I excited about? I think fundamentally what really excites me is technology and freedom. And I don't mean freedom in a, 
in a kind of simple way, but I mean feed them in a very deep way, which is think of the, the jobs that we've had to do for millennia, right? A lot of them were the DDDs, the dangerous, the degrading, or the dirty jobs. Uh, one example I can give you is uh, coal mining. Not very safe. A lot of mining is also done underground. And one of the companies that I'm advising today, Steve AI, a California-based company, we're building automation, but we're building automation for the mining sector. We have still today a lot of operators at a mine. It's not a safe, safe environment. And if automation is going to help anyone, it's this operator at a mine that's sitting there and doing this kind of work. And the ability to for the same person to do it remotely, you know, sit at the comfort of a chair and have a tele-operated job where they're remotely controlling the vehicle or fully automating a truck's load haul dump cycle so the truck knows where to go, it knows where to pick up materials, it knows where to drop it. And again, these operative jobs are elevated to more managerial or supervisor positions are where I think, you know, our autonomy truly and this innovation truly gives someone freedom from these kind of jobs and from, you know, what we've had to do throughout history, right, is like, um, if you'll see in most uh, underdeveloped or developing countries as well, is a lot of people are involved in the agriculture sector. And again, I'm seeing automation of, of equipment in the agriculture sector. Versus here in the U.S., less than 3 to 4% of the people I involved in agriculture and the rest of us can keep getting PhDs until we're 35, until we're middle-aged, basically. <laughs> and that's okay, too. So that's true freedom. Well, I got mine at 29, so not quite 35 yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not middle-aged, okay. <laughs> yeah, really just called out Jim there. It's totally true. <laughs> Yeah, he's he's partying the rest of the time. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, cool. And 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 yeah. <laughs> sorry, where do you where do you see where do you see the role of you know the federal government or even local government at, at the policy level, kind of shaping this future of mobility tech? What needs to happen? Yeah, absolutely, all of the above. Uh, look, federal government they can come in with regulation, they can come in with money. But it's truly up to local municipalities, local agencies to understand what their people need. How do we have a better um, standard of living? And what are the ways to do that? And how do you leverage technology to get there? There's a new concept called 15-minute city, which is that within 15 minutes, I can get to a grocery store, I can get to the university or job that I'm at. I could get to most of the you know, social life, most of the things that I do on a day-to-day basis. And that's a great concept, which I think a pandemic allowed us to really rethink how we shape our cities and hopefully move towards this 15-minute vision. What we've seen is people take over their cities. You know, where you live is where you can also go walk down the street and, and engage with people. And we've seen pilots come up in literally every city across the world. A city like Paris, just in the last year, 17, one seven percentage of the people have gotten a scooter. So it's either electric or non-electric scooter, but 17% of the people there are just in the last year, have acquired a micromobility device that tells you people are looking to make you know, shorter trips, quicker trips, easier trips as well. It's been wonderful getting to talk to you, Prachi. Given your work experiences in all these different types of organizations, what are some of the challenges that you faced in, in your own career and advice that you would give to someone who want to know like, what's the next step they should take? Jinyan, thanks for that question. I think as future generations look to, to different jobs and technologies, a question that's often asked is, what are the skill sets that are going to be relevant for tomorrow? Uh, the World Economic Forum, in fact, came out with the, the next industrial revolution, 
that, all right, we are going to lose a ton of jobs because everything's going to be automated and we have this this, uh, digitalization of things as well. So we won't need as as many people and and skill sets. And in fact, it's disproportionately hurts women. In fact, for every one job that's lost by a man, three jobs will be lost by a woman Mm. as a result of this this kind of vision we we are moving towards. So what I would tell people is work on the cutting edge in your field. You know, the basic skills of mathematics, physics, computer science, engineering, all that is still going to be relevant. It's just going to be applied mm. differently. And it's actually with this kind of problem and, and dilemma that a few of us uh, from MIT, not from Howard, but from MIT, we started a foundation called Women EM. So Women EM, like plutonium, titanium, the element of women. And the whole goal is to train young people, especially young women, We've trained women all the way from high school up to mm-hmm. postdoctorate level and trained them in the cutting edge of their fields. So one example of a program we did is with the NIH, which mm-hmm. is the National Institute of Health, where there was a small lab that was working on the next generation of fMRI technologies. So this lab had about 16 men and one woman. And this woman said, well, we are hiring. I'm the only woman. It would be nice wow. to have more of me here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And we made a program with her and her team. And uh, we thought, okay, maybe if we train like 50 people, and I think that would be pre- pretty good. You know, we would have like doubled the number of experts in this field. That's 17 mm-hmm. of you. But, you know, if we train 50, that's that's a good number. Instead, we had over 720 students from 40 different wow. countries sign up wow. for our program. In fact, this was so successful that we had a communication platform where students could ask each other questions during the training. And any question on average, will be answered within eight minutes. I mean, I think that's a better metric than even <laughs> Howard, right? Like you have yeah. to call your TA, yeah, or find <laughs> a roommate somewhere else, or a classmate. Yeah, we, we got, again, so much engagement from this that we trained the students, we sent them to one of the largest neuroscience conferences and had them present. We had a boot camp, they were present at NIH, and then many of them got recruited by sister organizations and other organizations we partner with as well. So it was quite a success. So that's what I would advise. Always stay at the cutting edge. This is uh, what has me excited in everything that I do from standard making to to working on innovation and with startups. And of course, uh, it's something I think in every field, a person who who knows what's coming forward with a person that would be a leader. That's incredible. Do you mind speaking to your own personal experience as a woman in STEM? Like, did you face some of these challenges and how did you overcome them? I've had a fantastic experience working. Typically, I'm the only only woman in, in a lot of meetings and in a lot of teams. I've had an amazing time. I think the, the U.S. and at least the, the people I've worked with are extremely meritocratic. Mm-hmm. And in fact, some of my, almost all of my measures have been men mm-hmm. as well. So I would say it's not a man versus women issue. It's really coming together and encouraging each other to do the best that we can together. This podcast is called How Tech Becomes Law. So given your experience, how have you seen a technology and its design create new rules for how society operates? Absolutely. So the first thing I will tell you is laws sometimes hold back technology. If I ask uh, any person in Silicon Valley, they will say they hate lawyers. Like people who just add add more difficulties and hurdles and stand up with the no. We are people of technology. We like to say yes. This can happen and then figure out the path to, to make it happen. However, of course, you know, laws, especially consumer laws, laws that are meant to protect people or the environment, all of those are strongly encouraged. What I've seen in my industry is 
on the transportation and mobility sector is it's a little bit boring. It's a bit of like concrete and rich people most of the time. And then around 2010, when Uber came around, there was, you know, Uber did phenomenally, they phenomenally alienated cities because they saw <laughs> the taxi industry go away. But they were also phenomenal in their success mm-hmm. and their growth. And that has sparked a lot of more, lot more innovations. I would say the micro mobility uh-huh. sector really uh, came about. It's because of the pushing the, the barriers and boundaries that, that Uber really did. And of course, you know, Lyft afterwards, but that Uber really pushed. So what happened is that when the micro mobility revolution came around, you know, 2013, 2014 onwards, and cities were seeing again these new kind of scooters everywhere, they wisened up very quickly. They started working with consultants, they started consulting each other and said, okay, how do we better manage this kind of innovation that we're seeing on our streets? And they came up with, with policies, they came up with policies so that the scooters are not littering all the sidewalks and hurting pedestrians, that the scooters are not causing problems to, to cars as well because of the variation with speeds and the expectations of how a road should be used. But also, what are the data sharing standards, right? How many scooters are at a, on a road? What are the number of scooters that are abandoned? And what is the responsibility of the private sector player to make sure that scooters are parked in the right place, that they're not, you know, getting dumped in the river by, by random people? So really putting the onus on the private sector to come up and say, let's better manage you. And then we could, we could welcome you into our cities as long as it's done well and done responsibly. So that was just in the last seven to 10 years that we've seen cities wake up and say, there's so much innovation happening in our field. Let's embrace it. And while we embrace it, do it well so that the companies are doing it responsibly and our citizens, the pedestrians, people who are um, who need mobility solutions, their needs are getting met. Fantastic. Hey, thank you so much for joining, Prachi. This is incredible. Always fantastic to hear from you and, and to chat with you. And thank you for listening. I'm Dhruv Gupta with Jinyan Zhang, and this was How Tech Becomes Law. Thanks for listening to How Tech Becomes Law. We are supported by the Public Interest Tech Lab. You can find us online at howtechbecomeslaw.org and on social media channels at techbecomeslaw. The music for this podcast was produced by Clarence Yap. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. It really helps other listeners discover us. Thanks again for listening and come back next week for another conversation on how tech becomes law.